0: so you can have the whole rest of the day off. Right? Don't uh, no, no, you no, guys no. Just do whatever you want to do the rest of the day, don't you? Oh, that's me. That's so nice. Oh, that's right. Oh, yeah. Uh- <laughs> so you're not now. Are you
1: older, or did you you didn't want
0: to be casual? <laughs> It's unbuttoned, it's casual. Let me pray. Father, we're amazed by the world that we live in. We see the marks of your creativity, your amazing design in the world around us all the time. It's a constant testimony to your creativity and it causes us to worship. It feels like the more we know about it um, and the more we experience, the more moved we are to appreciate you in a deeper way. And so as we think about our physical world, And how it's understood, how it's comprehended, Father. Increase our capacity, expand our souls, give us more volume to worship you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Like Spinal Tap, we want to go up to 11, not just 10. Um, And if you don't know the movie, sorry, it's not a medical procedure. It's a pretend rock group. So we're going to move into... uh, one of the best topics in the world, science. Anybody here science geeks, anybody? Be proud, be proud. It's um, <laughs> one of my favorite areas of investigation. Uh, if I had a higher IQ, I would be a scientist, but I'm not, so I'm a theologian. Um, so what, is a, what do we understand in this culture of science? Let's kind of get started and talk about what about science gives you hope? and turn and talk to the people around you and then come back with some good answers. What about science gives you hope in this world? In this world? Gives you hope. Intelligence gives me hope. No, it here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's
1: okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm because <so lost> <laughs> I'm That like, it has to be <laughs> 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 <Then, laughs> <then, laughs> <then, laughs> like <one> so <laughs> <speaker, so laughs> when we the just, yeah. term- term- well, guess who <laughs> born in science? Because <laughs> your science my teacher, my teacher, my teacher my came my up my a bit like, <laughs> sorry, are you telling me to science? science, you science no, know. you can't go into science. Yeah, my science teacher's like, don't have a science teacher. Oh I don't like this. I don't like this. I don't
0: that was my mother, too. And I feel like science and biology works together or not. I think it's just one of those little tasks. biology. I'm like, yes. Yeah, I do. All righty. Let's see what we've got. So I hope I hope there are discoveries in the world of science that give you hope. Um There might not be, but what about science gives you hope? Ravage, that we would cease to be ravaged, yes. Not ravaged, probably not ravaged, ravaged. Others? Mm-hmm. Very much so. In fact, a lot of the presuppositions, most of what science has tried to prove has not worked. But one thing they keep proving that they were hoping not to (laughs) is the existence of order beyond comprehension. And uh, it's it's amazing. So we can get into that in a little bit. Yes, big like. Yeah, it's like the further we can see, the more amazed we are at how big everything is. That's exactly right. And the same is true the other way. The better we can see, the smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, the more amazed we are at the intricacy of life. I mean, the big movement among theoretical physicists right now is to find a TOE, a theory of everything, one part that will explain the whole. And it's this constant look. I mean, I read a book 20 years ago when the huge Large Hadron Collider was commissioned in Santa Fe, New Mexico, the director of that, his name was Leon Letterman, wrote a book called The God Particle in an effort to try to discover what they've now called the Higgs boson that they thought they discovered and now they're not so sure. Um, and uh, they're just trying to find this smallest component. He called it the God Particle because he felt like it was the building block of everything. Pretty amazing. Mm-hmm, sometimes, some yeah. yeah. She said that they're willing to continue to learn and continue to push forward. Um, like all intellectual endeavors, science is challenged with finding something not known yet. So that's a constant, I was telling somebody in here that part of, what we, part of what we had to do in a doctoral dissertation, part of what you had to do is propose something that hasn't been done yet, and scientists have to do the same thing. So it's this continual edge of learning, yeah. What else gives you hope? Does anything tick you off about science? What ticks you off about science?
1: Yeah? Just kind of like the politics around it. And how, I don't know, Like I really feel like one idea and one bias is gets, it gets pushed and gets more time than the others.
0: Can you give an example? <laughs> Sounds like you're bothered by something. I kind of <laughs> want you to get it off your chest. Yeah, so. well, it's
1: kind of just like, um, well, for example, like the evolution and how you know, there are you know, certain models that have been printed in textbooks, and later they're like, well, I don't think that's really true. But yet, they're still in university textbooks. And that really bothers me that they were willing to lie to the general
0: public. Yeah, or went with what they had because it was economically the best idea. Yeah. What else ticks you off about science? It doesn't get the credit. Not, no. Like, we give no peace
1: Prizes to people who've done nothing to deserve them? <laughs> well, he's the like, But oh, well, like, or, um, <laughs> <It's> not <laughs> okay. is not my
0: real idea. <laughs> no, that's fine. I think um, that was a bold statement. Like,
1: don't know, but they've, like, successfully recreated a liver, and, like, put it in someone, and it works out well, and this was happening at the same time that, um, like, what's his face became a girl, or whatever, and, <laughs> well, it's true, like, they successfully have a liver that's working in someone else's body that they grew in a Petri dish, that person no longer has liver cancer, and we don't hear anything about it because we hear about some guy wanting to be a chick, like, I think that's super sad, like, that can change someone. That changes people's entire entire lives. That that person no longer has to deal with can, like cancer anymore because they have a functioning liver in their body mm-hmm. that's working. You know, we, and we put all of our money and our thoughts and these ideas towards these things, and they don't get a credit that they deserve because we pass them up for the next trending humanitarian who's not even a humanitarian. Who's a confused individual. Yep.
0: So I can see this isn't bothering you. So that's good. No, I'm kidding. <laughs>
1: homosexuality is genetic or not, or mutating animals. And it's like none of this is actually that important. And they're not, I mean, not all science is like this. I think there's different types of science, naturally. But I think how they spend their time or money, I think sometimes could be
0: pointed to something more beneficial to people. Yeah, that's one of the things that ticks me off, is science right now is economically motivated. Mm -hmm. And that's not good your hand up or are you just stretching your fingers? Yeah, and science really does demand both sides of the brain. I mean, you have to be on a creative edge before you could start a theory. And then you have to move over to the other side and put something together that's verifiable to substantiate your theory. Yeah. Yep. Um, That sometimes really doesn't serve
1: a purpose. Like Dave was sharing with us this car that they had made, which is pretty much a rocket on wheels. But I mean, there's no place you would actually drive it on Earth. Like, they have to test it in the desert and then they have to stop it before it goes into, like, another country because it would travel, I don't know, someone else can tell you, <laughs> like, so fast in so many seconds. Like, but we're putting it on the ground. There's no place we would actually use it. And they already took off, like, what wings would be to be used in space and stuff. So it's just time, energy, money, like, that isn't actually advancing us here. Um, mm-hmm. Just to
0: break a speed yeah. 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 I think that's what she was getting at. Yeah. yeah. Because, um, I've heard so many Christians just say they don't care about science because science today has totally rejected God, so they don't even
1: want to have anything to do with it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. What are the uh, underlying convictions of science? What would you say? I mean, there are underlying presuppositions, convictions. What do you think they are? Can you possibly that? Yeah. yeah. What motivates scientists to keep pushing forward? What, what are their convictions? Truth in what sense do you think?
1: A truth that is provable, something that you can test. Not like history, because you can't prove that through nope. science, but like saying there's water on Mars, that's a sign that's a truth that scientists have been able to prove,
0: mm-hmm. and to follow where that leads. Good. Other ideas? <laughs> Predictability. They're trying to create a way that we can predict and and say that this is now a law. We've been able to say this cause has this effect every single time. And we say now that's a natural law. And there it gives us a sense of predictability. If we do this and this and this, this this will happen. So there's this hope for predictability because that's how we take care of the diseases that ravage our bodies. Um, Because we could say, well, if you have this genetic makeup, you're predisposed to have this. Vulnerability, we're predicting that, and we can treat that before it happens. That's good. Also, there science in the same way? Say again? Yeah, in science in general, there's a, a desire to be predictive, to be able to say that we think this is going to happen. I think scientism, for sure, has the belief that there's no question that science cannot answer. Absolutely. Which is not necessarily true. Yeah?
1: because of brain patterns or whatever and then there was like, this whole like crazy thing that happened after it and so like depending on that person's biases or agendas like that person could be just making stuff up just to get recognition or like the doctors that we dot or something. like that's totally unfounded and not true and that guy just did it just to get his article in
0: there and to get like i said earlier about Peace Prize kind of thing so yeah, right so as I'm an offshoot to use it to their agendas. as an offshoot though what you're really talking about is media Because science, proper science, is a self-verifying community. Um, If you make a theory, you publish a theory, it's supposed to be able to be tried and tested by your peers. And it can't get published unless you get peer reviewed that says, yes, this is true. The media doesn't have that same conviction. So if the media gets a hold of something, they're really the ones that that create the hype. And scientists do ride the wave of media, for sure. Um, But that's not proper science. That's pop science. Every time I say science, I give Nacho Libre. I only believe in science. (laughs) What are the critical issues between science and a biblical worldview? What are the critical issues? And that's what we're talking about. I don't want to have to define this or anything, but what do you think some of the critical issues are for us? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of critical, ethical issues within biology, for sure. Other issues? Mm-hmm? I not know if it's an
1: issue, per se, but, like, the fact that most people, when they go into science, like, people that I've talked to, they go more to prove that evolution is real and not to, or even, Prove that you know
0: homosexuality is genetic, or prove that you can mutate a cat with a leprechaun. Yeah. <laughs> a
1: leprechaun. Probably not a leprechaun,
0: but yeah, that was good. <laughs> Right, and I think what you're saying is one of, the, one of the difficulties is there's presuppositions going in, and science, by definition, is supposed to be completely neutral. You're not supposed to have a presupposition about what's happening when you're watching something. You're supposed to watch something objectively and then make a theory based on what you've seen, not come in with a theory of what you're about to see and then try to prove it. But that's exactly what we do, the Bible, all the time. <laughs> we have this great idea, and we come in with a presupposition and try to find a, t- a passage to, to support it. Science does the same thing. Yeah, a presumption. Any other ideas of critical issues between the two, Jacob? Science can't prove everything. No. And having a biblical worldview and then fallible the science can very easily trip you up. Uh-huh you mean overconfidence in science when it cannot prove everything. Yeah, very good. And that's really what we're gonna be talking about today is what science is good for and what it's not good for and how we understand the limits of science and the beautiful intersections. And I love that what I'm hearing in here mostly, this is, I think I've taught this six times here, um, I'm loving that there's a greater sense of um, open feelings toward scientific endeavor because I think a lot of times, a group like this has come in with a fear or a defense, um, defensive position against science. And I'm not sure that's healthy for us. Yeah? Can you talk just a little bit louder? I scientifically can't hear very well out of this here, so both ways, yeah, both ways. Yeah. yeah it's really true and it's interesting because like reading literature the people uh, who are coming from what they would call biblical worldview attacking science are attacking the most vulnerable aspects of science not the core and the same thing is happening this way that the scientists who are attacking my biblical worldview are attacking the most vulnerable um, not core issues for for us And what's funny to me is people on both sides kind of define the argument in the public eye while the rest of us watch it and say, that's not important to me. That claim doesn't matter to me at all. That claim is not, I'm not basing my faith on whether that's scientifically proven or not. Yeah? Very much. Both ways. Both ways. I've written some horrible stuff from a biblical worldview attacking just the very fringe parameters of pop science. And I just think, oh, go read Wait, more. Did you just say you wrote? Or no. You
1: read?
0: I've read. I might have said I wrote. I heard you said no. I wrote. No. It's <laughs> the past tense of read. Yeah. I wrote some stuff that's just horrible. Don't ever read it. Oh, brother. All right, so let's get into. Of all the good things we could say about science, one of the areas that is a very core issue is naturalism. Um, And this is the idea, the system of thought holding, that all phenomena can be explained in terms of natural causes and laws, which is the playing field of science. If it doesn't have a natural cause or a natural effect or a natural law, It is outside of the realm of science, period. Okay, and scientists are trying to make moves into some of the areas that have been off limits to science because they're not physical, they're not natural in the sense of being physical. Um, This is natural in the sense of nature, not natural like my natural disposition. This is nature. Um, So the idea behind naturalism is that full knowledge is attainable by methods of scientific investigation, which is again, observe, make a theory, create a test for the theory, and then come to a conclusion, whether your theory is substantiated or not. Now, a scientist doesn't use proof, media uses proof. Scientists uses whether your theory is upheld or it's not upheld. Most theories in science are not upheld because you have to have so many tries before you can get one that works. We know about the ones that are upheld. So this idea really is an admission that science needs to make that they have a playing field and then they have outside of their area. But science it's hard for science to keep it within its borders, to keep within its parameters. Within the parameters, the problems here are full knowledge and all phenomena. All phenomena cannot be explained in terms of natural causes. Love is a great example. You have felt love. You have given love. You have received love. You know what it feels like. And so they try to create a natural cause in terms of hormonal structure and genetic, um, in terms of um, chemical reactions inside of you, that that's what love is, that you have this chemical reaction, um, which was a big big song in the 80s. Um, But you have this internal physical reaction that we call love. and that it's reducible to this biological function within you. And that when you get the butterflies or the feeling or your face turns red or when you kiss for the first time and you can't feel your toes, um, which that does go away, I'm just telling you. Um, I can feel my toes all the time now. Um, But when you get to that feeling, (laughs) um, but the, the idea that that is all physically describable or naturally describable is the conviction behind naturalism. I know, it it just doesn't take that much, does it? (laughs) (laughs) A second pseudo-god, or a second um, overindulgence in science, and this is very carefully written. It's not science, it's scientism. And that is the belief that scientism has the authority over all other interpretations of life. It's also called scientific imperialism and scientific fundamentalism. And this is the near religious trust in science to answer the hardest questions in life. And this is when people will say things like, I can't have faith because I'm just too scientifically minded, as though these two are incompatible. There's no way you could have both. and that is the idea in scientism, that science has the ability to answer any question the hardest questions. And that is not so. I mean, you could take, we took love on one side, you could take something else that's very, very real, like suffering. Why is there suffering in the world? And science cannot answer that. And people are, tr- are trying to, um, i trying to think of his name. I think it's Richard Harris. Christopher Hitchens, Richard Harris, just wrote a book on why science, you don't need God to have morality because that's one of the big arguments that comes up in this discussion is without an absolute good God, you don't have a basis for reality. Right? You don't have a basis for morality. And so he wrote a book trying to say that is not so. Here's science's explanation and it's, bio, it's biological and it's sociological and they're just trying to like, apologetic, create an apologetics from science against Christianity, because they're taking our arguments and turning them against us. Another one is reductionism, finding the lowest building block of life and working back up from there, which makes sense. I mean, if you have a problem to solve, you try to simplify it down all the way as far as you can. If you took science in junior high, and you take a science class in junior high, and they told you, like, it's going to rain in class on Monday. And you're like, woo there's going to be a huge cloud. And all they did was, like, create condensation in an aquarium. You're like, come on, I was expecting rain in the classroom. Uh, they take it down to its smallest possible component. And then create a theory out of that and extrapolate it back up. That's why they believe a theory of everything is going to come down to finding the basic building block in theoretical physics. If they can find that, they believe that they will have an answer all the way back up to the very, very largest thing. So reductionism, and reductionism is just part of the modern world. The church is subject to reductionism. Society is subject to it. Political structures are subject to it. Reductionism is one of the big problems that modernism has handed off to each generation. Reductionism is minimize the problem, bring it down to its smallest part, find a solution, then go back up. That's what we've done with the gospel. You know, we have all the Bible. We have the whole gospel. This is all God's story. But we take it and we minimize it down to one little thing, like John 3.16, which would be a very short Bible if that was the entire gospel. If we didn't need all the rest of this, you only need John 3.16 to accept God's love for you in Jesus Christ. We're reducing the gospel down to this one thing. I mean, if I asked you what one word, not Jesus, his name, but one word would describe the gospel, you would probably say the cross or resurrection or incarnation, but all of that has to fit together. So science does the same thing, and it reduces everything down to its smallest part. Any questions about any of this? These are some of the difficulties. There are a lot of difficulties, but some of them are just too big to talk about. So what are some of the the theological pitfalls? And we've already talked about epistemology, which is the theory of how we know what we know. And this time we're going to talk about epistemological subjectivity and the sense that we have that has been brought up in our discussion here that on our side we have faith versus on their side they have rational thinking. On our side we have subjectivity, on their side they have objectivity. On our side, we have intuitions and inner feelings. On their side, they have evidence, they have proof. And so it's not just science that has marginalized the convictions of revealed truth that Christians hold. Christians have done the same thing. We've made it sound like we're unintelligent and we're just going with our feelings. And, you know, there's an old song, the, the chorus ends. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. And that is a purely subjective feeling. We have so many other ways to prove that Jesus is alive other than just my feelings that he walks with me, he talks with me along life's narrow way. Um, that is pure subjectivism. And we have let that happen. It's one of the theological pitfalls of pitting ourselves against the rationality of science. We have revealed truth. It is just as strong as any empirical truth, any rational truth. Remember, we talked about the three ways of knowing. This is that third way of knowing, and it is a solid way for us to know what's happening. Somebody brought up science, I think you brought up science, uh, history, and said, you know, science has no handle on history, because there's nothing you can do about it. It's already happened. It's done. It's, history is not physical. It's purely memory. It's purely chronological. Um, but I trust history. I trust there was a Mayflower. I've, I just, I've seen a replica of it, <laughs> but I trust there is. When I trust that the rock they told me was Plymouth Rock is the rock that they all came and like kissed when they got here or something. I don't know, but there is a Plymouth Rock. I mean, I believe that there was, uh, you know, a, a queen named Bloody Mary, or nicknamed Bloody Mary, Queen Mary of Scots. Um, I've never met her. I don't see her, but I believe that the you know, the history that's been handed off and comes to me in written form, I I trust it. Yeah? Do have archaeology and stuff that supports history? So it's not just belief in yada,
1: yada, yada. So they do stuff that gives proof, but does not necessarily, you can't go back there and see it. But there's stuff that supports it. What are you thinking of?
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. Here's, here's Not here. all of it. <laughs> Not all of it. I'm just talking about pure history. You're right. There is archaeology. I get that. I, I understand there's, there are places and things that have been found that show us like how life was millennia ago. And, and I, I understand that. I'm just saying pure history, like what we studied. I haven't been to those archaeological places. I'm t- still taking somebody else's word for it. I'm taking an archaeologist's word for it. I just read it in the book, right? That's what I'm saying is revealed truth or authoritative truth is a real kind of truth. Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying that there aren't other proofs. I'm saying that this is a way that we know because we trust a source and we say yes because that source said it. Which is okay. I mean, that, again, that's what you're doing right now Is you're sitting listening, and you might believe me on some of this, and you might not believe me on some of this, I don't know, but you're still taking the time to sit and listen to somebody who's thought about this and read about it. So in the intellectual discourse, in the marketplace of ideas, we have to be aware that if we come off as just purely subjective, just purely going by our intuitions, just purely going by our our, um, internal feelings, or define faith as a non-intellectual enterprise, We're going to lose the conversation. And in fact, um, science has to trust as much as we do. I mean, you, you watch something in scientific methodology, you make an observation. When you form your theory, you believe that it's true. You believe that you've put together ideas that if they hold together, they give you the spelled out cause for the effect that you're seeing. You have to believe that. If you didn't believe it, you wouldn't go get funding. You wouldn't posit an explanation if you didn't believe it was true. Leprechauns are a great example. I mean, so I see little footprints in my garden, and I just assume that it's leprechauns. Um, if, in, in order for me to, like, set my leprechaun trap and get the funding for said trap, um, I would have to believe that it's going to happen. If I didn't believe it, I wouldn't go get the funding. I would just say, wow, that is a cat with really weird feet you know, that's walking through my garden. So you know know what I'm saying. So if you don't believe that something is verifiable, you wouldn't pursue it. So it takes a certain amount of subjectivity and creativity and thinking outside of the box. Even in science, you have to start thinking like no one else has thought yet to find a theory that no one else has come up with yet. Right now, physics is purely theoretical. Because the pieces, the parts of reality that they're talking about, are so small that there's no way that you can see them. They're so microscopic. They have as many zeros behind them in negative size as the amount of zeros that are used to explain, in a positive sense, the cosmos. They're remarkably small. The Higgs boson is something that they've tested. So the most recent discovery of the Higgs boson happens in a two mile Large Hadron Collider. This thing is monstrous. It's two miles Have you guys heard this before. It has eight detector stations along it. Each detector station employs 3,000 physicists. Each detection station. And what they're doing in these detection stations is they're super speeding these small <laughs> infinitesimal particles as close to the speed of light as they can. Speed of light is? 186,000 miles per second. Nothing moves faster. They're trying to super speed these with huge magnets. These are huge electromagnets. That's where all the copper has gone. That's why your pennies are no longer copper. Because all that copper is in these huge, ginormous, bigger than this room, electromagnets that are lined all around this two-mile tube. They supercharge these things, super speed these things, and run them into each other. And this happens literally millions of times, trillions of times a day, millions of times a minute. These collisions happen. And so these detector stations pick up all these collisions. And then these 3,000 physicists times eight stations are going through this data with their huge supercomputers, trying to discover these pieces. It's pure theory. All they can do is watch the destruction and try to guess the power of the particles that they're trying to detect. So that's why I'm trying to say it's just pure math. It's just pure theory right now. Even if they can prove it, which they thought they had, and it was announced that they had found the last piece of uh, the theory of everything, or the last piece of, um, yeah, the, the, the last particle that they were hoping to find. Um, and now, even after all these mass, trillions and trillions and trillions of calculated collisions. Somebody said that they don't have enough proof. The scientific community literally said they don't have enough proof. Um, so they'll keep spending tax dollars. Actually, this one's in Switzerland, so it's not your money that's being spent. Um, so when we start thinking of this subjectivity and objectivity, we both have both the world of biblical perspective, the world of scientific perspective. We both have subjectivity and objectivity. If you didn't have a gut feeling as a scientist, you'd be a terrible scientist. And if you didn't have objective certainty as a, as a biblical Christian, you would not be a very convincing biblical Christian. And you're basing your life and your decisions and how you move forward in life on something. And it can't just be pure subjectivity. And then we talked uh, earlier about the difference between experiential knowledge and rational knowledge. And the sense that we have that ours is pure experience and science is purely rational, and that is not the fact. Science is just as experimental and experiential as anything we have under the banner of revealed truth. So I do know that Jesus lives because he lives within my heart. I do know that. That's just not the only way I know he lives, right? I know know that from a lot of evidence and a lot of proof in my life. So we start thinking about theological pitfalls, we have to come back to this concept of knowing and how we know what we know, this whole idea of epistemology. So what what science holds is what's called propositional knowledge, that they make a proposal, they verify the proposal, and it becomes something they can state as fact. A knowledge that a particular proposition about the world is true. So that's what a theory is. It's a proposition. I've seen this over and over and over. Here's my proposition as to why it's happening. I created this experiment, and now I can verify. I know why this is happening. And what we have in our revealed truth is a propositional reality. Um, God created. That's a proposition. And I have to go about finding the proofs that substantiate my proposition, the evidence that substantiates my proposition. Um, And I have to live with my answers. I have to live with the best answers I can come up with. I mean, really, when you come down to it, in all of creation, there's only two possible choices. There's Darwinian evolution, which, as you know, does not really address origins. It does not. It addresses adaptation, natural selection, but it does not address origins, or you have the idea of a creator god. Those are really the only two choices you have. And if you decide you're going to side with Darwinian evolution, you have to come up with something like a Big Bang, which is again a purely mathematical theory because nobody was there. <laughs> I mean, they're just measuring stuff as it's moving away from a point somewhere else. Um, And they come up with this as an idea of origins, that it explains Darwinian evolution because as things moved away from this hot spot and the earth and the cosmos began to cool, it created the perfect scenario for life on this one planet. That enough of this infinite matter in an infinitesimal spot um, condensed to the point where it just exploded outwardly. The problem is where do you get infinite matter in an infinitesimal spot? Whose matter is it? Who put all of it in one little place? So the big bang still leaves the question hanging. Like I understand, like if there was this one place where things, everything that exists squeezed in so far that it finally just exploded, you still have to have whose everything is it? Where did you get the stuff to explode outward? It didn't just, it wasn't just there. And so people say, well, it just goes back and forth and back and forth. That still doesn't explain where it came from. You're saying, yeah, it goes back and forth, but where did it start? Who made it in the first place? Versus over on this side, I could say an uncaused cause. Who we call God spoke it into reality. That's just as possible as a Big Bang. Nobody was there at the Big Bang. Nobody was there at creation. It's just as plausible an idea. In fact, it's more plausible. There are two things that have just been discovered or stated differently, I should say. One's just been discovered. One's just being stated differently. The first one is that in this theory of everything, the closest thing that they can get to in these smallest bits, the smallest particles, is called superstring theory. Anybody ever heard about this? Yeah? Um, so that's an attempt at a theory of everything. And these strings, and it's just a metaphor, they're not actual strings. They're not twined, they're not, They just don't have any other way to explain them. Actually, they're just little vibrating waves um, that are vibrating at different speeds, and the different speeds determine how hard things are around us. So there's some vibrating that you're breathing in and some vibrating that you're sitting on, some vibrating that you're wearing, and some bright vibrating that you're made of. They just vibrate at different speeds. And scientists and metaph- uh, physicists are now saying, that these vibrations are the closest thing that we have to the kind of vibrations they are is sonic waves. How did God create everything by the, the sound of his voice? God created everything by sound and in super string theory they're saying the smallest one idea that we ha- they have explaining the very smallest building block is that it's a vibrating string. And the closest thing that we have to compare it to that we know of for sure is sonic waves, sound waves. And that blew me away when I read it. I was like, that is amazing. Because even in their deepest desire to find a physical cause, what they still find is something that substantiates what I think, that God literally spoke it into being. And he's still speaking. He keeps it all vibrating by the very sound of his voice. The other thing that's important to understand is, if you decide between these two, Darwinian evolution, or God just created it and sustains it, is, has anybody read any of Richard Dawkins, like The God Delusion, or, um, yeah, there's there are books by this guy, Richard Dawkins, and he's probably not the greatest scientist, but he's the most famous writer of biology, and an outspoken new atheist. And um, he made this statement, in the book, The God Delusion, that it is absolutely impossible for Darwinian evolution to have created you. It's not possible. In fact, the impossibility is so great that it wouldn't register as probable in any scientific endeavor. That Darwinian evolution made us, made humans. Just not possible. So, Their conclusion is, but since we know that evolution happened and we're here, it must have. That's their conclusion. It's absolutely impossible for evolution to have made humans. But since we're here and we know evolution is true, even though it's completely impossible, that must have been what happened. Which I could use the same argument, right? I could say it's absolutely impossible that there's a God who's smart enough to make me. But since I've already believed in God and I'm here, it must be true. So when we start saying, oh yeah, they're just, they have rationality and all we have is faith. Um, that is not true. They're trusting something just like I am trusting something. They're looking for evidence just like I am looking for evidence. The difference is how we gain knowledge, how we push forward. Um, and John polkinghorn I think I wrote these down. John Polkinghorne has these two big ideas that, um, that, are, that really we need to be thinking about. And the first one is the, uh, the hermeneutic circle. Is, are these in your notes? I think it is. down a bit. I think. Yeah. Polkinghorne, two circles. Yeah. Um, the first one is a hermeneutical circle. And we know what hermeneutics means, it's a science of interpretation. Um, hermeneutics is not a Christian endeavor. Hermeneutics happens everywhere. There's political hermeneutics, there's um, um, jurisprudence hermeneutics. You know, proper interpretation happens in a lot of places. So, the first one is this understanding of interpretation that we have to believe in order to understand, and we have to understand before we can believe. So, let's say it this way I'm an evolutionist who believes that. Uh, in what they call the anthropic principle. That um, evolution can't make humans, but I'm here and I know that evolution is true, so it must have made me. That's the anthropic principle. So I believe that, and now I'm gonna try to prove it. And once I start pursuing that, I begin to understand it better and better and better. But I have to believe it first. If I don't believe it, I'm not gonna pursue it. Once I believe it's true, I can start trying to prove it. And once I understand, I have to understand enough of it to try to pursue it. There's this circle of belief and proof and belief and proof. And that's what you feel in your life too. You feel it in your prayer life. You believe that God hears your prayers and answers your prayers, right? If you didn't, you wouldn't pray. So you pray, believing that God can hear it and that he's going to answer. And then when he does, what does that do to your belief about prayer? It strengthens it, it substantiates it. You feel inside like it's literally... Proof that God is listening to you. What happens on the converse if you don't get the answer to your prayer? (laughs) You start asking other Christians, does it work when you pray? Does God hear you? And someone outside of you says, yes. Yeah, God answers my prayer. And they give you their personal experience, their personal experiment in prayer. And so you get this validation. But in this circle, this is true in religious belief this is true in scientific belief this is true in every realm of pursuing knowledge that if you don't believe it's true you're not going to pursue it but if you believe it's true you'll begin to pursue it and then you'll begin to understand it and that substantiates your belief the second one is in how we know uh, that how we know is controlled by the nature of the object and the nature of the object is revealed through our knowledge of it so let me give you some examples of this Like if I wanted to see a star, what would I use? Yeah. Has anybody used a big telescope before, like a massive telescope? Like if you've been to Sun River, they have the Oregon Observatory there and you can look at the stars. Finally did that this summer after all these years of going out there to Sun River. Finally my daughter and I went there and they have these huge telescopes. And I thought, I mean, these things are monstrous. And I thought I would see like a star like bling, like like it looked like the moon. And They look through and they say, you know, we really can't just detect individual stars. So what we have in all of these are clusters, star clusters. And they've named them different things. Like one's called the owl. And I'm like, why do you call it the owl? Oh, and it looks like, you know, big owl's eyes. And it's like, okay, that makes sense to me. But there's just a million stars in a cluster that you can't even see unless you have this. But with this amazing telescope, all you can see is these clusters. They're so far away that the most that we can see is a bunch of them all together in one place. Now, if I was looking for a microbe, what would I use? A telescope? I'd use a microscope because there's probably microbes all over the telescope, right? (laughs) So I'd have to use something that looks at the very, very smallest thing. And if you've ever looked in a microscope, it's something that you thought was just like a fluid or a speck. And you can see the edges of it and the internal parts of it. And you see it in a whole different way. Well, what you're trying to find determines what you're going to use to find it, right? So if I wanted to understand 17th century colonial politics in Western Europe, would I use a microscope or a telescope? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't use either of them. They're both completely useless because of what I'm trying to, destu- to study and what I'm trying to understand. What would I use? Old history books, Old history books newspapers, mm-hmm. standards. I'd probably have to go there and look at physical evidence of what happened in 17th century in Europe um, and political structures and talk to experts. I mean, I have to use a whole different series of investigative tools to to discover what I'm trying to find. So that's what Polkinghorn is saying here, that that what you're trying to find determines the nature of how you will discover it. So if I'm trying to find God, what tools am I going to use to discover God? Am I use a microscope? or a telescope? Am I gonna use a history book or a scholar? What am I gonna use if I'm trying to discover God? Or love? Or morals? Or ethics? See, science is completely out of its realm to try to look at something that is not physical, that is not part of the material world. Even when they are, they're using the same ways of knowing that we use for our ability to know God. God has given me self-conscious as a tool to know him, self-consciousness. He's given me a moral compass inside of me to know him. He's given me a living spirit that my dog does not have. I have a really good dog. His name's Jack. He's a great dog, but he does not know who God is. He knows what food is. He knows what come here is. He even knows when I go like that That he's supposed to go from the back door around through the garage to the garage door. He knows like hand motions. A very, very smart dog. But he does not know who God is. God has given me something that I can know him by. That none of the rest of creation has. I'm specially equipped to apprehend God in all of creation. So when science tries to go outside of its boundaries and outside of what it's geared to know what it's supposed to be able to discover, it gets in trouble. And when we give over rational thinking, we give over objectivity, and we give away um, experience as true knowledge and just lean into subjectivism and intuition and feelings, we are giving ground that we do not have to give. We come to knowledge from science and Christianity the exact same way. Our experience, our rationality, and our revealed truth. Any questions or comments? My hope is that you won't be afraid to talk to people about science. My hope is that whether you like science or not, if somebody brings it up and just says, I don't have faith, I'm just too scientifically minded, I don't believe in God, I only believe in science, you could have a conversation with somebody and not just back away and say, well, I guess you're just not going to go to heaven. I guess you just don't have any room for God. They desperately need to know just the way that they understand things from a scientific perspective is the exact same way that we can understand who God is. Knowledge happens the same way from both directions. Okay? Yep. Can you go over where you put what are the limits of our knowledge? Like what were we supposed to fill <laughs> Yeah, I can. So this is the slide I didn't show in the effort to get to the poking stuff. So, and again, it's the same thing, the, the juxtaposition between rationalism and, empiric- and uh, empirical uh, knowledge that science thinks of itself as rational, but it's based on empirical evidence. That sense experience is the basis of knowledge, which we've already talked about. Science is rational. Science is rational in that um, in, in so far as it's mathematical. When science isn't reliant on math, which a lot of science is not, it is not rational anymore. It's just purely empirical. Even when something is proven, it's, it's empirical fact. It's not rational fact. Any other questions or comments or? fell asleep last night when my wife sent me a paper that she had to turn in today to proofread for her. (laughs) And I didn't get the text until this morning. It's like, oops, I fell asleep. Sorry. (laughs) She's like, oh, well, I turned it in. So these words all make sense to you, right? We've been talking a lot about the differences here. I want to make sure that you're all on the same page. Is that the one that you were looking at? Yeah, how we know it is controlled by the nature of the object. Yeah, it would be better to use a word like apprehend. How we apprehend is controlled by the nature of the object. How you take it in is controlled by what it is. How you sense it is controlled by what it is. and that's why I was using the idea of the stars and microbes or whatever. The nature of it controls how you essentially understand it, take it in. All right, let me pray. Father, we're just grateful for the certainty we have that when we pray like this, you are listening. It's not just an intuition I have. It's not just a feeling. It's, uh, it's not just an experience. It is evidentiary in our lives. And that's why we all bow. And we all attune our hearts to you because we believe that you listen. And we believe that you revealed yourself to us. That what we see around us is evidence of you. It's evidence of your presence. Because our only other option is that some weird accident happened a long, long, long time ago. And that natural selection has placed us here in a series of random accidents. Which takes too much faith for me. I would rather believe that you did it, it makes more sense to me. And I can verify it, and you prove it to me over and over in my life. You prove it to me in the lives of other people. You prove it to me in continual transformations. And because of this, Father, I have hope. I have hope in what science is not able to do. And I have a hope that you are continuing to work in our world and reveal yourself even through something like science. Help us all to know you better. I pray in Jesus name, amen. Thanks everybody, now it's nap time.